The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the food, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Peter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the count of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be a guest in the place of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, as we live among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And you may be seated. So in a uh, classic um, episode of the TV show, The Simpsons, um, and by classic, I mean very old. I saw it when I was in college, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, but in this uh, episode, the uh, father of the Simpsons family, Homer, um, uh, goes out for sushi, and he eats um, some blowfish that hasn't been prepared properly, um, and he's told that he has been poisoned um, by this uh, blowfish, and that he only has 24 hours to live, um, and so then the rest of the episode captures how does he live his final day uh, before he dies. Um, he does the things you would expect him to do. He um, connects and spends time with different members of his family. He has a heart-to-heart talk with his son. He listens to his daughter um, play um, saxophone. He uh, reconnects with his father, who he's sort of estranged from. They play catch um, together. It's actually kind of a moving uh, moment um, in the, the Simpsons. He um, sees his boss and tells his boss off, which isn't really a positive thing, but for Homer it is as he um, gets to speak truth uh, to his boss. He spends time time with his friends, Um, and then the day ends uh, for Homer, actually with him listening on tape, because again, this was a long time ago, to the Bible on tape, Um, and it being The Simpsons, it's the Bible, is read by Larry King, Um, but still, um, it's the Bible, Um, and uh, uh, that's how he falls asleep, so he's seeking actually the care for his soul, that's my interpretation at least. Um, uh, Homer wakes up the next morning, it doesn't really explain why he doesn't die, but he's alive, um, and celebrates that he is alive, 
And um, he says, from now on, I am going to live life to the fullest. And then the final sort of shot of the episode is uh, Homer sitting on the couch, eating fried pork rinds and watching bowling on television. So it kind of leaves you like, is that life to the fullness? Maybe it is uh, for um, Homer. Uh, but it brings up um, a couple things that I believe sort of capture how we think, um, uh, things, truths we hold on to. Uh, one is, is that if we recognize and live in the reality that our time is limited, that that should actually help us prioritize um, and to do what's most important, right? I mean, people say, live every day as if it's your last, right? And that, that episode kind of captures, like, how would you live if it was your last day, right? You'd be with the people you care most about. You'd do the things you've always wanted to do. And yet, I thought that episode also captured that even though, right, we, we recognize this to be true, that to recognize our limited time actually leads to redeeming the time and using the time well, that that's also tends to be a really hard thing to sustain. As much as we may like the idea of live every day as if it's your last, I think most of us would agree that's actually really hard to do, right? We want to use our time well, but it's hard to sustain that. It's hard to keep that up. Well, we have actually a very uh, similar message in 1 Peter today. In our passage from 1 Peter, if you look at verse 7 there, the passage is on page 7 of your bulletin. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, right? And so Peter is saying, look, the end of all things is at hand. I believe he's saying there, the, the Lord is coming soon. And, and recognize, right, that your days are limited. Therefore, live in this way. So there's actually a similar message. To know that your time is limited affects how you live. And yet there's help there too uh, that we are given. So let's look at the passage and begin with, our time is limited, but actually also I would say a message of this passage is, and it's not limited. So it's both. There's a way in which our time is limited, there's a way in which it's not. If you look at the beginning of the passage, um, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So this is building on the end of the passage before this, the end of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, where um, Peter talks about Christ dying the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, for us, for sinners, in order to bring us to God. So he's talking about in Christ's suffering, through his suffering for us on the death, uh, his suffering for us on the cross, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection, we are brought to God, right? Salvation comes. And he's saying, just as Christ suffered, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, in other words, recognize that your suffering can be redemptive, different from Jesus' suffering. Jesus' suffering brought um, you know, eternal life to all those who put their faith in him. But again, as we deal with suffering, we can ask the Lord, how are you working in this? How are actually you bringing redemption through this suffering? Now, as I say this, it's really important. I, I hope this has been clear in this series on 1 Peter because 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering. We want to be clear, right, that suffering ultimately is a bad thing. We can be clear on that, right? When we look at the story of Scripture, right, we know that there's suffering in this world because sin has come into this world because we are in a, a fallen world, right? There is, you know, sin and death are at work in this world. And God's original plan was not for that, but we turned away from the Lord. And so um, we recognize that. We recognize that Jesus in his ministry, as we see recorded in the Gospels, one of the key things he did was relieve suffering. Right? He healed people. He came against suffering. He calmed storms. This is the work of God. And we recognize that ultimately the work that God is doing is that we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation where we are free from suffering. So we want to be clear that the Lord comes against suffering. He comes against the effects of sin and death. And yet, he also, because he is a redeeming God, 
can work in the midst of suffering to actually grow us and to grow others. Right? Again, that's a testimony to God working in the midst of bad things and bringing good out of them. And so this means when we're facing suffering, when we're in pain, it is not bad to pray, Lord, please relieve this suffering. Lord, please heal me. Lord, break in, right? Make a way, right? That's been a huge song uh, for me um, over this last year. Make a way, Lord, where there's trials and difficulties, make a way. But also we can pray, even as we're praying that, and I believe that's the right thing to pray, we can pray, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? Even as I'm praying for you to relieve this suffering, how are you working in it? Um, how are you redeeming this situation to grow me, to bless others, right? We can live in both. I believe that's what Peter's speaking to us. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Right? You hear that language, right? The way you think actually is protective. Arm yourselves with that. Receive this gift of how to think about suffering, how to approach suffering. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, if you suffer, you're going to stop sinning. Um, we know that's not the case. But again, he's getting at that oftentimes suffering actually can strengthen us to turn away from sin. That actually, again, the Lord can use suffering to make us more reliant and more dependent on God. And maybe that looks at just knowing the Lord's presence in our suffering, knowing his strength in our weakness. Often in suffering, we are more aware than ever of how weak we are and how much we need the Lord. But I think part of this dynamic and the way in which suffering actually can help turn us more to the Lord and turn us away from sin is we do realize the frailty of life. We do realize how limited life is. We realize how short time is often. We get sort of a different perspective on things as we walk through seasons and times of suffering. So we see that in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time. Right? So he's building off of, right, the Lord can work through suffering to help turn you away from sin. Recognize how to live then, um, how to spend your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, again, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. We'll talk a little bit more about what the Gentiles want to do um, in just a minute. But again, his emphasis there is, right, recognize that maybe the way you lived in the past, right, that you are done with that, that you are now called to live for Christ and for his glory. May your suffering sort of inform, actually, the way of life that the Lord calls you to. And to recognize, again, our time is limited. And he actually connects then this limited time to dealing with the fact that as you abstain from certain behaviors and as maybe others look at you and say, that's crazy, like, why aren't you living the way we're living? The way we're living is awesome and fun. What's wrong with you? Peter reminds them they will have to answer to the Lord. We talked about this last week. It's here again, right? He's focusing on coming judgment. The Lord is a judge, and we will have to answer to him. And so as you experience their maligning you because you're turning away from what they say is the way to live, Right? Remember that you and they will all have to answer to the Lord. Once again, the time is limited. Right? The Lord is coming, and that informs how we, we live, right? both, again, in light of his incredible grace, but also in the reality of his judgment against sin and against evil. And so, verse 5 then, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Okay, now what does this mean? Uh, last week, um, if you were here, um, we looked at uh, the passage right before this, where there's a section that speaks about um, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, as I shared, I believe that that's speaking to Jesus' authority over all spiritual powers, 
Right, but some actually read that section, Jesus speaking to the spirits in prison, as um, Jesus speaking to those who had died between his um, crucifixion and his resurrection that he spoke to those who had died. So that's one understanding of what this re- is referring to. Uh, but I actually think the more kind of just obvious um, uh, in the uh, case of the context is as speaking about those to whom the gospel is preached when they were alive who have now died. And so he's basically saying, look, you know people, right, in this church who heard the gospel, who received Christ, who have now died. And in that sense, right, they have been judged in the flesh. They've experienced what everybody experiences as a result of this being a fallen world, that people die. Now, some actually wonder even maybe more specifically when he speaks about those judged in the flesh, the way people are. He's acknowledging there are those you know who put their faith in Christ, who are persecuted and put to death because of their faith. We know that was happening in this area where this church was. And so it could be he's saying, look, in a sense, they were judged in the flesh, right? I mean, they were put to death um, because of their faith in Christ, but they are now made alive. So he's, he's upholding the fact, look, in one sense, we'll all face judgment, right? We will all die. But to know Christ is to be made alive um, in the spirit the way God does, right? In other words, we're with the Lord for all eternity. So your time is short. Recognize that your time is limited, right? That you will die, recognize the coming judgment of the Lord, but also recognize that in Christ, you are set free from sin and you are given the the gift of eternal life. And both truths actually inform the way we live. If you've been to um, an Ash Wednesday service before at our church or any liturgical church, and as many of you are aware, Ash Wednesday is a um, service, a day that marks the beginning of the season of Lent. Um, One of the traditions around Ash Wednesday is um, if people want to, they can come forward and receive the imposition of ashes. So ashes are made in the forehead. uh, The sign of the cross is made with ashes. As people come forward, um, whoever is putting the ashes on their forehead will say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's always a very sobering moment. I always feel kind of bad as a pastor. Like, I'm telling people over and over again, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I mean, children. We put ashes on on the foreheads of children. Um, But the message is, Remember, you're going to die, right? Apart from Christ, right, you are mortal. And that's important for us to remember, to number our days, um, as the, the psalm says. But that same service, even as we acknowledge, right, our frailty, our weakness, right, the fact that we are going to die, we also celebrate communion. And when we celebrate communion, right, we are getting a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. We are remembering this is not the end, that we look forward to life eternal. And both of those affect how we live now. Yes, our time is limited. Right? We will die, and that affects how we live. And yes, we are looking forward to future glory with the Lord. And therefore, why shouldn't we glorify him now? Right? It ends so powerfully. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and forever. Right? That's the reality that we will live in for all eternity. So let's start living it now. And so both of those things we can hold on to as Christians. Our time is limited. Our time is unlimited. And that affects how we live. And there are really sort of two ways um, uh, Peter here is emphasizing the way that affects how we live. It affects what we give up and it affects what we give to. And so that first section, again, we see there's a call to giving up, right? As we, again, recognize um, the Lord's calling upon our lives, there are things we are called to let go of. For the time, verse 3, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, I think it's significant that he could have just said engaging in sinful behavior, right? Or he could have listed all sorts of other types of sins, right? Bitterness and anger and, you know, 
other places where we have listings of sins list those things. But I think it's significant that what he's focusing on are often sort of those um, actions that are associated actually with like abundant life, you know, at least probably by, you know, those he's speaking of, right? That this is how you enjoy life. This is how actually you live life to the fullest, right, is in these things. And I wonder if Peter is focusing on them to say, look, you actually realize and recognize the lie that these things are actually not life-giving, that they're actually not the abundant, joyful life. They actually lead to death. We see in these, you know, this list sort of three categories, right? There's um, sensuality, passions, orgies, right, which basically covers false intimacy, we could say. Right? The Lord gives us the gift of sexual intimacy to be lived out in marriage, right, in a covenant of love. The Lord's design for sexual intimacy is for a giving and a taking, right, where you are honoring and valuing that other person, right? But that can be twisted, right, so that sexuality becomes only about what you get, comes actually about devaluing the other person, about, you know, using the other person as a sort of commodity. And so he's speaking to that. He's speaking to drunkenness and drinking parties, basically saying, look, this seems to be a place of enjoyment, but actually, again, it's a place where you are in an unhealthy way dulling your pain. That's 21st century language, um, and what I, I believe he's saying there, right? You, you're indulging in these things, right, but it's actually killing you. It's not lending, leading to the tenderheartedness that our passage last week spoke about. It's actually leading to a hard-heartedness, right? And all of that, of course, is a type of idolatry. Idolatry at that time often was connected with drinking and with sexuality. But any idolatry is when we actually look to something to give us power, to give us freedom, that actually is enslaving us, right? That's what an idol is. When we say, this thing is going to help me, and then over time we realize, oh my goodness, right? It's actually the master, and I'm the slave. And so he's warning them against that, right? Don't fall into that trap where you think something is actually helping you that's actually binding you up and taking control of you. And I'm struck, actually, as I, I read this and have been thinking about this week, how often in, you know, the stories that we hear today, whether in movies, right, literature, right, you know, TV shows, how oftentimes part of that story um, involves times where um, people grow in intimacy through getting drunk together, right? Just think of like movies and things, right, where someone's sort of cold to one another, they don't really know each other, and then they get drunk together, and then it's like, oh, now I know the real you, right? That's a message we're given, right? Now the inhibitions are gone, and we can really bond, right? And that happens, of course, in regard to sexuality. That happens in regard to the promise of many idols. Like this actually will help you know your true self. This will actually help you to live in community with others. And I'm struck that those things often, they're like shortcuts that we're being offered that don't work, right? That we're kind of being told, like, here's a shortcut to intimacy. Here's how you can really be yourself when you're around other people. But they don't work, right? It's actually a false intimacy that they bring us to. Whereas the Lord presents us a path of intimacy that, yes, maybe is the longer route and the more challenging route, but it's the way of life. And he's saying, look, live the way of life, right? You, your time is limited. Maybe at one time you lived in this way, but you know better now. You know actually that the Lord's way, even if it's the way of the cross, is the way of freedom. And so you can give up. But it's not just about giving up, it's about giving to. And really that's covered um, powerfully with many examples of what we're called to give to in 7 through 11. Right? So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Give yourself to prayer. Right, to being grateful to the Lord, to um, uh, praying for others and interceding for them. Give yourself to loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we want to be clear there. When it says love covers a multitude of sins, 
That doesn't mean covers a multitude of sins, uh, sins in the sense of like hides them and makes sure nobody sees them, right? That's what we kind of think when we hear cover up. But this is rather acknowledging that as we respond in love, as we act in love, we come against the damage that sin has done. Right? As we practice Christ-like giving love, we are coming against the effects of sin. We are reversing the damage of sin. It covers up what sin has harmed. Verse 9, show hospitality one another without grumbling. Right? Peter had to add the re- without grumbling, didn't he? He kind of like knows, like sometimes you're getting ready to show hospitality and you're kind of grumpy about it. So just don't be grumpy, you know. <laughs> so anyway, like, thanks a lot, Peter. Right? So isn't it enough? I'm showing hospitality. Um, and then verse 10, um, in the rest of the passage, he gets into gifts, right? The Lord has gifted you. And that actually ties into sort of a third thing. So, right, in light of our understanding of how we're called to live, of how we relate to time, that affects how we live. But the third thing to emphasize is the Lord helps us in that. So like I said, I think we know, right? Yeah, I want to live every day like it's my last, right? I want to redeem the time, but we often feel overwhelmed by that. We often feel like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to live that way, but I can't help it. I just keep wasting time. And that's where we need to know the Lord's grace and the Lord's help. So he calls us to live in a certain way, but he helps us. And again, this passage, I just want to focus on two ways that we see that. In regards to the giving up, we see that the Lord, through his spirit, convicts us. He helps us to give up, to walk away from those things that damage us, those sinful activities that actually pull us away from the Lord as he convicts us with his spirit. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does in those who have given their life to Christ, that he brings conviction. Now, conviction is different from shame. Shame, usually in the way we talk about shame, the message of shame is actually, you're terrible, right? You're bad, hide. Don't let anybody see how how bad you are, or they have seen how bad you are, and therefore you should hide, right? That's the typical message of shame. That is very different from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit says, you are valuable, right? You've been made righteous in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ, and yet your actions don't match that. And so basically it says, turn away from those actions, turn to the Lord for his help, because that's not who you are. So whereas shame basically says, hide away, the message of conviction says, come into the light, right? Let the, bring, bring these things to the Lord, because he will bring healing and strength to you. And so conviction is actually freeing. This was uh, brought out uh, powerfully um, in a, a movie uh, Molly and I um, watched um, recently um, called Father Stew. Um, some of you may uh, be familiar with it. Uh, I recommend um, the movie, but as a pastor, I need to tell you, it is full of really bad language. Um, so um, be uh, warned um, if you see it. Um, it earns its R rating um, uh, as far as language goes. But it's a story of a, um, a man who actually feels, uh, experiences a very surprising call to become a priest, to become a Roman Catholic priest. And surprising because um, the way he initially becomes part of a, a Roman Catholic church is he is pursuing a woman who basically tells him, I don't want anything to do with you, I won't date you unless you become a devout Catholic, like, like she is. And so he is so you know, enamored of her that he decides that's what he'll do if that's what he has to do. And as he begins to get involved in this church, he actually finds himself drawn to the Lord and fascinated by what they believe. And basically, there's a season of his life where he's living sort of a dual life. He's living the life in church where he actually, again, is actually starting really to enjoy it and connect with people. And then he's living his life outside of church where he's definitely in no way living for the Lord or, you know, honoring the Lord in his actions. And for a while, he can live in this tension, but things come to a head where actually all these things he sort of wanted to happen in his life outside the church start to happen and he realizes he doesn't even enjoy them anymore. 
So there's a moment where he goes to a priest and uh, he says this in, in, the, in confession. He says, I did something I wasn't supposed to do, but it's something I've been thinking about and hoping I could get to happen for months. Something I wanted more than anything else in this world, but then I had it and all I could think about was disappointing God. And the priest says to him, this is good news. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin, right? That this is conviction, right? As you've experienced God's love, you realize, I'm not okay with sin. Well, then Stu responds, and this is my translation, um, again, in regards to language. He says, this isn't about my messing up. It's about being messed with. Basically, he's saying, look, I actually didn't come for confession so much to confess my sins, but I want to understand what's going on that I don't enjoy them anymore, right? That's what he's upset about. And the priest says, another word for what you're experiencing is grace, right? It's grace, right? To actually experience, I'm no longer happy in the way I used to live, in the ways that that was opposed to God and opposed to the things of God. I'm not at peace with it anymore, right? He says, all I could think about was disappointing God. It's because he's come to know God as a loving father um, who actually calls him to life and freedom. And so conviction is a gift. And it may be that that conviction helps us when we experience temptation to say no and to turn away from it, right? That is our prayer, and that is how conviction works. But also at times we experience conviction when sadly we do say yes to temptation. And we give in to that temptation, and we experience the conviction of the Lord, which reminds us we can always turn again to the Lord, right? He welcomes us to repent and to turn to him, as our Isaiah passage made so powerful. He has made our, our sins, right, as white as snow through his shed blood. And conviction reminds us of that. Come to the cross and receive the mercy that's already there for you, that's already been poured out on you and is waiting for you to continue to live into. So there's the gift of conviction, but then as far as the giving to that we're called to, there's the gift of the Spirit, the empowering work of the Spirit. And so as he's talking about these things that we are called to, right, then he gets to verse 10, and it's each has received a gift, right? You're not alone in doing this. Right? The Lord empowers you in what he calls you to do. And so when we think about spiritual gifts, right? I mean, that's key in the heart of spiritual gifts is the Lord gifts us. He empowers us through his spirit to fulfill the things he's calling us to. So um, Peter says, verse 10, each has received a gift. Right? This is echoing what Paul teaches about the spiritual gifts. If, right, if you are in the Lord, if you know the Lord, he has gifted you through his spirit. Yes, he's given you natural talents, right, which are also a gift from the Lord, but he has given you power above and beyond what you have in your own strength to serve him and to honor him. And you all have gifts, right? Each has a gift. Use it to serve one another. The gift is not about, oh, good, I'm special. You are special, right? But that's not what spiritual gifts are about. It's not about, look at me. It's about, oh, the Lord has empowered me so I can serve others, so I can give too. And so he gives a couple examples, right? If you're called to speaking, then speak um, as one who speaks oracles of God. Trust and believe and experience the Lord's working through you. If you're called to serve, serve by the strength that God supplies. And this is about serving in a way that God is glorified, you know, experiencing his power at work um, through you. And so if we feel that sense of, okay, the clock is ticking, my time is limited, that feels like, you know, just an immense amount of pressure. Here in this, the Lord helps you in that. Don't hear burden, actually hear invitation, right? I, I want to help you redeem the time. I want to help you live life to the fullest, receive my spirit and its help. Let's pray for that. Lord, it is our desire to bring glory to you, 
to live now um, in light of the fact that uh, for all eternity, we will be with you in glory. And so we pray for that, Lord. I pray today for those perhaps who um, are experiencing condemnation, who um, have had the sense of shame, Lord, that you would replace that with your conviction, that they would know that when you convict, right, that's a, a path of life, that you would free them from any voices of shame or condemnation, and said that they would know the invitation to turn to you and to grow in you, that they would know your love. And Lord, we pray, I pray for any who, as they hear even me just talking briefly about spiritual gifts, who kind of have that sense, well, that's not me, or um, that's not something I'll ever receive, that you would um, speak to them, assure them, Lord, that you are at work in their lives, call them um, uh, to a joyful service where they may experience in greater ways your power at work in them. We thank you, Lord, um, that our lives are in your hands. We thank you, Lord, that again, you empower us for what you call us to. We offer these prayers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.